Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, welcome people once again to yet another wonderful episode of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the 74th episode, the Messier episode, as it were. You're like, what? What? Messier? That's right. Because in astronomy, Messier object M74 is a magnitude 10.5 spiral galaxy in the constellation Pisces. And with that astronomical information, I, as always, am the ever-inquisitive Matt. And I am your sick and tired of Mexican food host, Tim. Sounds like that's a pretty simple fix. Don't eat Mexican food. But I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's probably do. I mean, I can't blame it on a holiday, especially since it is probably one of America's most misunderstood holidays, let alone it's not really even a holiday. And that is Cinco de Mayo. Do you you and your family celebrate Cinco de Mayo? Because for one thing, it does mean... We do. It is a major, major event in my family. Really? Hugely. A huge deal. I hope it's not because of Mexican independence, because Mexican independence is not. It's because it's my sister's birthday. Really? It is my sister's birthday. That is why. So I call her, and then I give her a hard time by wishing her a happy Cinco de Mayo So instead of a happy birthday. When she was born, okay, so like my sister was born in December, and when she was a newborn baby, they placed her in a stocking because that was the holiday at the time. Oh, sure. When your sister was born, were, did, was she put into like a sombrero? No, actually. Or wrapped in um, foil? Th- this, this would be pretty interesting th- to tell you how either how far we've come or how... Well, it's definitely how far we've come. It's just whether or not it's good or bad for you. My parents were very ultra-religious at the time. So they were teetotalers in the whole nine yards. So there was no Mexican holiday stuff happening, and there definitely was no beer or sombrero. Uh, to celebrate the birth of my sibling, the hospital actually provided them with a full steak dinner. In the hospital, they got a whole steak dinner, and that was like the thing they did when you were like when you had a baby. the 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 hospital that evening would give you a steak dinner, steak, baked potato, vegetables, the whole night. Like Salisbury steak or, or real steak? No, 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 like an actual steak. Wow. Yeah. Boy, have we downgraded significantly. <laughs> And, and believe me, having been through this hospital experience four times with all of my children, never have I gotten a steak dinner. I've gotten a medical bill or two, but never a steak dinner. Have you gotten any food that was actually warm or lukewarm that you can actually eat and enjoy? I, I've never been able to partake of the hospital food. Um, I don't really recall what my ex-wife said about it. I don't think she particularly hated it. And then Jen, she is she she said it was okay, but I would always because we we had our uh, all the babies up at uh, Memorial Hermann in the woodlands, uh, I would always just run over to Canes and I'd bring her Canes, and she was very very happy with the Canes, and that's what we did. Wow. Well, how was your week? I know uh, you had a reason to celebrate before the show today. 
why don't you tell us a little bit a uh, bit about that? Yes, I did. All, I had finals week this week, and all of my finals were scheduled up before this evening. Um, I I know that I had passed my other my other classes and stuff. The only one that I was really worried about was math because it was. I'm literally at the point where I had to take this math so that I could take my sciences and stuff. And this class has just been an utter fucking fiasco. Literally, non just a. Anything that could go wrong for this class has nothing was working. They were literally just making up rules on the fly. Uh, it was a terrible program, and I was desperately afraid that I wasn't going to pass this final. Um, and and you, so you have to get a seventy. It's not even like you could eke out a D. No, no, no. You must get a C, or you just you know you'd have to do the whole course over again. And yeah, so I was sweating it uh, along with a few other people in the class uh, and. We literally all turned them in and then made her grade them on the spot so that we would know. And I got a 79. So, woo, drinky, drinky. So, what if she... <sighs> hmm? I take what? it you're enjoying a beverage right now. I am enjoying a monster-sized uh, Wild Turkey 101 and Coke. Cola? It, it it will not be the first nor the last. <laughs> oh, so like, what if your what if your teacher wouldn't grade the paper right then? Like, would you? I am make fairly her? certain that there would have been a revolt in the classroom had she not graded them. She didn't just grade mine; she graded everybody's. Oh, okay. So yeah, so now I am done. Uh, at least until Monday, when all of my grades finally post. Good but times. either way, this 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 is what's happening. Very nice. Yeah. Yes. What about you, sir? What about you? Other than eating Mexican food, not much. I, I mean, I've been eating... Uh, there's... It, it's funny. Like, I I don't know. Like, I, I've been having... Since since we've been cooking a lot, making, our, making food at home, because it's Cinco de Mayo, or it was Cinco de Mayo, I decided to do what every other white person does when they don't go out and just drink or whatever it's just it's to eat mexican food enchiladas or whatever so i made enchiladas and as i was trying to figure out something to put the enchiladas in because i made too much you know too many to eat although there are many in my family that would say there are never too many enchiladas that you have made no but i went and i realized oh wait okay so the container to put into the refrigerator has already been occupied in fact it has been occupied with the leftover enchiladas that i made like four weeks ago and i gotta say leftover enchiladas four week old or it could even be five week old enchiladas are not that great to look at especially the way i made them in a in a slow cooker for some reason like some moisture got in there and, and it looked like a toddler's arm a milky white toddler's arm that didn't have any finger it was just weird and it's even weirder i came up with that association with a old wet arm like enchilada but i guess that's all i've been up to fun stuff hello <laughs> Doki, then. That's a, um. Well, I I I guess I have no response to that. Other than I do have some kind of interesting news before we get to the real news. I I would like to share with you. Sure. 
Okay, for all of the people who are old, like me, you might remember that before the MP3, before cloud technology, before MP3s, before iTunes, and for the five of you out there who did it, Zoom, and before CDs, there were cassette tapes. And interestingly enough, it's just a slow, cumbersome way to record data, but it is actually still the most efficient form of recording data. And Sony has come up with a way to fit, I'm not kidding here, 3,700 Blu-rays worth of storage on a single cassette tape. (laughs) It, It literally, it works out to, oh my god, what is it? It's like seven thousand gig or something like that yeah it would have to be a lot oh no i'm sorry okay i'm sorry i take that back 185 terabytes oh well so you, you one were terabyte off. is yeah. a thousand one terabyte is a thousand gig and of course one gig is a thousand meg right so you're out there and you're thinking you're a badass with your you know your raid setup and you're, oh yeah look at me i got 16 terabytes in my raid 10 setup right and no 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 one cassette tape that's right the hipster cassette tape 185 terabytes that's 185,000 gig so are tapes going to make a comeback it's entirely possible. I think it's really more for long-term data storage because it's actually safer on tape than it is on disk or in the cloud. So that that's what it's oh, yeah. for. It's, it, yeah. it, and it's a specialized tape. It doesn't quite look like the traditional cassette tape. But anyways, yeah, so that was kind of weird. And then on some sad news, which I guess is going to lead into our sad real news, uh, the guy who took over Mad Magazine and made it popular, his name was Al Feldstein, he passed away. So that's kind of sad. Welcome to the show. Yeah, <laughs> R.I.P. Al Feldstein. R.I.P. We sh- we Al- Alfred E. Newman will never be the same, I suppose. And and with that sadness, the news. <laughs> Just enchilada baby arms. (laughs) Very (laughs) show title. Enchilada baby arms. There you go. There you go. Or baby enchilada arms. All right. Well, okay. So since we're already on dead people, let's move along to more passings. The first up on the celebrity passings uh, comes to us from BBC.com. And it is Bob Hoskins. Dies of pneumonia. Age 71. British actor Bob Hoskins, who was best known for his roles in The Long Good Friday and who framed Roger Rabbit, has died of pneumonia at the age of 71. Uh, His agent said he died on Tuesday in hospital, surrounded by family. The star won a BAFTA and was Oscar-nominated in 1987 for crime drama Mona Lisa, in which he starred opposite Sir Michael Caine and Robbie Coltrane. Uh, He announced he was retiring from acting in 2012 after being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Quote, we are devastated by the loss of our beloved Bob, end quote. And this is coming from his wife, Linda, and his children, Alex, Sarah, Rosa, and Jack. They said this in a statement. This is a guy who literally had one of the most prolific careers. He was big on stage, big on screen, larger than life. And yet, we were actually discussing some of his 
finer roles. Uh, I believe you mentioned Mona Lisa. I had actually mentioned uh, Mermaids, which despite our you know, joking around about it and everything last year after the Shark Week thing. His role in that movie is just, it is truly one of my favorite roles of his because of just the, the, it's a side that most people don't get to see of Bob Hoskins. And it really showed what kind of characters he could portray that, and the range that he had. And the same with Mona Lisa and everything. And so it's just very, very sad. Um, Lots of interesting movies and stories about him. You know, it it was actually kind of funny because along with what they had in the BBC article, there was actually a Telegraph article uh, that that talks about the more interesting aspects of his life. For instance, that he did not know that Super Mario Brothers was a video game. He actually found out from his son. Due to all of the animation work, it was all lots of blue screen stuff back then. Uh, For Who Framed Roger Rabbit, he actually was hallucinating (laughs) at some point. Uh, He was actually a real plumber before he played Mario. Uh, He was known infamously or famously as a pretty boy. He actually got a chance to star in The Cotton Club. It was uh, being directed by Francis Ford Coppola. And yet he was more excited to be working with Fred Gwynn. Yes, Herman Munster, that Fred Gwynn. And then for everybody who remembers, of course, The Untouchables, he was originally cast to play... Al Capone. And this would, the caveat was, of course, if Robert De Niro couldn't do it. But since he had signed it, uh, and then Robert De Niro could do it, he actually got paid $200,000 to not appear. <laughs> you know, he, he actually, this is also some guy, and this uh, I think really ought to tell you, he would use what was called the cold bum test, where he would take his script to the bathroom. And if he read it for long enough, that his butt went numb, or cold, then he would take the part. This is the kind of guy that he was in real life, and yet he was also such an amazing actor, and it's just kind of sad that that he is that he's passed, and proves that just exactly how serious pneumonia really can be. So, if nothing else, pay attention to that shit. You know, I practice I practice the cold bum test or numb bum test every day, really, <laughs> with articles. That's actually how I choose my news. If oh, one if well. one piece of news stands out, you know, it, it means I can't walk when I get up the toilet. So yes, okay. So I'm just going to jump in. Just mention a couple passings here. Uh, Michael Travis, Liberace's costume designer, passed away at the age of 86. Yes, I know he's not an actor or a writer, but he he's a prolific costume designer. I mean, it's Liberace. He, he designed all the sequence and the glitter and all that flashiness he designed. And, it, it's you know, it worked. It's spectacular. He also did some of the outfits for Roan and Martin's Laugh-In, as well as serving as the costume designer for the Academy Awards for six years. Again, his name is Michael Travis. He passed away at the age of 86 years old. The next passing is an actress by the name of Jackie Lynn Taylor. She passed away at the age of 88 in the Sacramento suburb of Citrus Heights, which I actually know about, or know of. Uh, she appeared in The Little Rascals. She was in, I, I, I think it was, it's six of the, uh, of the Our Gang comedy shorts, which were, which were released in 1934. Uh, she played one of The Little Rascals. She made her debut as Jane, which was the girlfriend of the gang leader, Wally Albright. I'm sure you know who she is. She 
stands out. Very cute little girl, very, very cute. Uh, what I wanted to mention real quick, and this will tie into one other little bitty news piece, Bob Hoskins, which is actually kind of interesting, and he's like he was actually willing to take on another famous pop culture iconic role other than Mario in Super Mario Brothers, but he was actually in the line to play Wolverine. That is right. This is according to Sunblend.com. They say that the rap unearthed comments of the Dream X-Men project of Chris Claremont, who has written a bevy of X-Men story arcs, including that of X-Men Days of Future Past. Long before Brian Singer rounded up Hugh Jackman, Halle Berry, and company for 2000's X-Men, Claremont was dreaming of his ideal X-Men movie, wherein Bob Hoskins would be his Wolverine. This might sound kind of insane when you look at Hoskins and his short and husky physique versus the pure muscle madness that is Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, but it's worth remembering that in the comics, Wolverine was long depicted as short, intense, and feral. With that as the casting breakdown, old school Hoskins seems the perfect fit. And they have a couple pictures here, uh, Bob Hoskins with his shirt off. And there's a picture of the comic book version of Wolverine with the shirt off. And, you know, it definitely could have happened. And it could have been, and it would have been successful completely. And I think that's definitely worth taking a look at, especially for the pictures. It's a Cinnablinon article, again, entitled, Bob Hoskins was X-Men comic writer's first choice for Wolverine, written by Christy Puchko. And real quick, a little bit of Wolverine news via Hugh Jackman. He did an interview with SFX Magazine, and this is what he said. He says, quote, Still, he's very ambitious for the character. We can still go further. If I did another one, I'm 99% sure it would be the last. So that will inform what it is for me. No one plot has jumped out yet. I'm working with Jim Mangold, which is exciting. Jim came on board the Wolverine after Darren Aronofsky had left, so he inherited it. And for all the things that Jim can do, one of the great things he does is develop scripts. I think it has to be better. I can still see where we can improve on the last one. I love the intimacy of that story. He's talking about uh, the last Wolverine movie he did. I like the small stuff. I like that it was a little unexpected. I don't want to get into specifics because it just upsets people, but there are certain parts of that story where I felt we were predictable. And I don't think you need to do that with Wolverine. End quotes. So again, that's him. That's Hugh Jackman himself talking to SFX Magazine about the future of the Wolverine character. Uh, So after Days of Future Past... You know, we might not see Hugh Jackman as Wolverine ever again, unless he does another Wolverine movie, which is worth making in his in his mind. Two sets of sequel news is here. Newses, news pieces. Let's just go with that. Two sets of. So we're gonna do the first one is sequels worth talking about. Here we go. So the first segment of sequels worth talking about. Uh, Star Wars Episode Seven cast officially announced. Now, we are coming into this about a week late, but that's because it came out after we recorded the last show. So what are we going to do? All right. And just in case you have been living under a rock or you don't care or you're just one of those imaginary people we think wait for us to talk about stuff, then this is for you. Actors, uh, this is, and by the way, this is coming from StarWars.com. 
All right, so here we go. Actors John Boyega, Daisy Ridley, Adam Driver, Oscar Isaac, Andy Serkis, Dom Hall Gleason, and Max von Sydow will join the original stars of the original saga. Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, Anthony Daniels, Peter Mayhew, and Kenny Baker in the new film. There you go, folks. There is your official cast from Star Wars proper. So yay, 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 yay. Enjoy. Drool, as it were. Next up, denofgeek.us. Courtesy of Mike Sacchini, Matt Smith joins Terminator Reboot. Yes, folks, former Doctor Who star Matt Smith is joining the new Terminator movie in a, quote, major role, end quote. Yes, in case you were wondering how Matt Smith would spend his time now that he's done with Doctor Who, that appears to have been solved. The 11th Doctor is joining the new Terminator trilogy in a role that Deadline describes as, quote, a major role that will grow in the second and third films, end quote. In other words, he won't be cannon fodder. Yes, again, this is for Terminator Genesis, all right? So... Outstanding, outstanding. And then last but not least for the worth sequels worth talking about news, from CinemaBlend.com, cur- uh, courtesy of Christy Puchko, Dread Producer Gets Real About Dread 2's Development. All right, so uh, Adi Shankar basically is saying, quote, I'm going to tread lightly here. I feel Carl made a small statement that got blown way out of proportion by news sites. Yeah, there are conversations going on about making Dread 2, but I wouldn't automatically go like, oh, there's conversations going on, so when's the release date? When there's no fucking script, end quote. Now, he is the one going out there leading the charge, trying to make sure that there is the possibility of one, but... Anybody who thought that there was something serious going on, or at least the chance, like I thought that there was last week, nope. All right, so some production updates here. The Human Centipede Part 3, that is right, there is going to be a third The Human Centipede movie. It's going to be called The Final Sequence. I, 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 we, Matt and I both watched the first one, and we reviewed it on the show two years ago, or more than two years ago, three years ago. Ooh. Uh, I don't think we actually got around to watching the second movie. However, uh, via Entertainment Weekly, who was interviewing Eric Roberts, he's the director, writer of all these critically acclaimed movies. Well, I mean, not necessarily critically acclaimed. I like the first one. I hear the second one was absolutely disgusting. But uh, this is what he says about his own movie, the third movie, where he says that it's, quote, it's really horrible. (laughs) And this is what he says about the movie, a little bit more in detail. Quote, Entertainment Weekly, this is who he's talking to. Quote, We have a centipede that is made of prison inmates, and they're all hooked together. When you see this, you will never want to commit a crime and go to prison. If you can imagine a hot summer day, and there are hundreds of men all bent over, and they consist of the human centipede. End quote. Mmm. That sounds good. Nothing hey, like... There are... You know what? There are people out there who would probably be into that. Yeah. Are you into it? No. Yeah. I'm just... I'm just saying. There are probably people out there who are into it, though. I don't know. But, like, given what I've been doing the past week, just reliving that quote, I got this taste of, like, old Mexican food in my mouth. I don't know. I guess that's what I'm associating with hot 
sweaty prison inmates. That just warms the cockles of my lower intestine and makes me want to go to the bathroom now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So Terminator Genesis, Matt was talking about this the other day. Uh, I read something interesting here. HitFix, they got a hold of the script, or whether they were able to read the script, and they brought up a couple things from the script that was pretty interesting, which kind of alludes to possibly Terminator Genesis will go back in time and revisit scenes or moments, uh, altercations, if you will, from the first Terminator movie. And this is what they say about the movie. The site's editor, uh, Drew McQueenie, I'm not lying, his last name is McQueenie, Drew McQueenie. This is what he said via HitFix. Quote, There's a scene in the script where literally we see the scene in the first Terminator where Arnold steps out, the punks threaten him, he rips Bill Paxton's heart out and takes his clothes and wanders off. And as soon as that scene ends, another Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's older and bearded in a very different version of the Terminator, comes walking in from the other side and plays another scene, right at the scene of the first incident. End quotes. So that's very interesting. We all remember that scene. It's one of Bill Paxton's first movie roles, and it's iconic and very gross. And it's it's interesting. It's uh, What do you think, Matt? Do you think it's a good idea to going back and revisiting the first movie like this? Wait, which first movie? The Terminator. They're trying to... Hey, you're hurting my brain. Too much alcohol and time travel do not go you together. Didn't, you didn't listen uh, to the quote? You didn't, you didn't listen to what I read? No, I didn't understand what you read. I I didn't get... I did not just piece it together. I'm telling you, too much alcohol is not good for time travel talk. You're turning into I did a not wild just, turkey. I just did not make the connection. They're literally trying to make this movie tied directly into the first movie? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, th- this guy, he's saying that there's, there's a scene where... That I guess that takes place right after the scene from the first Terminator where he encounters the thugs and Bill Paxton and kills him uh-huh. and steals his clothes. Sure. And then an older version, Arnold, an older Terminator, Arnold, bearded, he's bearded, walks out and there's a scene that happens right afterwards. So, I mean, I don't know if it's going to... Oh, good they're God, they're going looper on us now? Seriously? This is terrible. Um, I Okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a better way to say this, so I, I apologize for sounding cliche. I've brought it up once or twice before. This is one of those where it's not about they have to do it right, because everybody else, well, if they do it right, okay? So I apologize. I'm, I, I truly am not trying to sound cliche here. When you start dealing with time travel, and you're already in the Terminator universe, so you're already walking a very precarious line. If you're going to do a scene like that, it can't be done right. It has literally got to be flawless. It cannot screw up anything that you've already established in a timeline that has a couple of major plot holes in it already that people have been willing to forgive. I am not enthused at hearing this news. Is, is that a fair answer? Sure. Yeah, but it's also. Okay. But keep in mind that this. I mean, we don't know exactly if he's. If he read an old script, or if he even read a script, he could be lying, this McWeenie. I mean, who knows? <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Who knows? This is Drew McQueenie. Okay, so next uh, update here. There's a movie about Grace Kelly starring Nicole Kidman entitled Grace of Monaco. 
And the movie has kind of been getting a little bad press because it's more of like an you know embellished look at this period of her life. Grace Kelly's family isn't endorsing this movie at all. But that's not what I'm, uh, you know, why I brought this up. But the, the director, Oliver DeHaan, he directed a fantastic movie called La Vienna Rose. However, and this is from a HollywoodReporter.com article entitled The Weinstein Company Nearing Deal to Keep Grace of Monaco Exclusive. And this is what it says. With the May 14th Grace of Monaco premiere at the Cannes Festival looming, Harvey Weinstein has decided to keep the biopic of the late Princess Grace after all. The Weinstein Company is in final negotiations to retain U.S. distribution rights to the film that has sparkled, or excuse me, that has sparked more headlines than any other Cannes title this year. The move comes after months of publicly feuding between Weinstein and the film's director, Oliver DeHaan, and producer, Pierre Ang Le Pougam, over the tone of the film. Weinstein was looking for a breezier rendition, while DeHaan's version painted a darker, more cautionary tale. End quote. Pretty much what happened, Weinstein, after watching the movie, made these notes, and the director didn't go back and take Weinstein's notes into consideration and has been fighting to keep his version of the movie. And like I said, this guy, he's an Academy Award-nominated director. So, I I don't know. I think I I side with the director here. However, uh, uh, another spark, another thing that has been really pissing the director off is that originally Weinstein was going to buy the movie for $5 million dollars. However, because the director didn't use his notes or take his notes into consideration when re-editing the movie or fixing the tone of the movie, uh, Weinstein is now saying he's going to pay only $3 million instead. So that is causing quite a commotion. Okay, two more updates here. One for the movie Midnight Rider. Uh, This is a movie about Greg Allman. You know who he is, the singer. William Hurt originally was going to be playing Greg Allman. I'm sure you guys have heard of this. Uh, a second camera operator during the making of the movie, she died. A train hit her and killed her. There was a death while on set. And so the movie has been on hold for months now, and the plan was to bring the production to California, to Los Angeles, and start shooting here. Or it might have been over, actually, in Burbank. I guess I have to specify if it's a suburb of Los Angeles or not. People get mad when people don't specify things out here. So I think it was in Burbank is when they were going to uh, do reshoots. Well, William Hurt, again, he's playing what you know the, the, the lead in the movie, Greg Allman. He left the project because he believes somebody died. This young girl died. The movie shouldn't go on. And so that kind of put a, a, a kink in the chain. Well, now the producer... And the inspiration of the film, Greg Allman himself wrote a letter and published a letter where he said, pleading with the filmmakers to halt production. And in fact, Greg Allman is leaving the production himself. He's not going to have any ties with it. He's not going to produce it anymore. And uh, he's really hoping that him leaving and him making people aware of his feelings will be enough to halt the whole production completely. That's interesting, and I uh, encourage all you guys to look more into that because uh, you you don't see this happening a whole lot. People just completely distancing themselves away from their own movie, Uh, especially somebody as reputable as Greg Allman. I mean, he's a nice guy, and you know what? I kind of you know I I kind of side with them in a way because 
how she passed away. It's a very, I mean, she, she, a train hit her. You know, this is a Hollywood movie and a train killed her. Stuff like that's not supposed to happen. And lastly, real quick here, Beverly Hills Cop. The next Beverly Hills Cop reboot is coming out for sure in 2016. And this is what the producer, Jerry Brockheimer, said. This is from TheHollywoodReporter.com. Jerry Brockheimer will produce the project. With is bringing back Eddie Murphy to star as Axel Foley. However, uh, we're going to take Eddie Murphy back to Detroit, Jerry Brockheimer said. He's going to be in Beverly Hills, so we're going to have some fun with him, end quote. I'm not too sure what he means by that. He says we're taking him back to Detroit, but he's going to be in Beverly Hills. So, I don't know. Hopefully clarification soon, but we'll see sometime in the near future. All right, that's my production updates. All right, well, now we're going to talk about movie sequels that aren't worth talking about. From ComingSoon.net, <laughs> courtesy of Spencer Perry, David Spade confirms a sequel to Joe Dirt is in development. Now, this all comes to us from a Reddit AMA. As you guys know, I am a big fan of Reddit. <clears throat> and so they were asking him about it, and he says the following in response to all these questions about a sequel to Joe Dirt. Quote, we wrote a sequel, and we wait, and we me, good God, have another drink. I believe that I will. <sighs> Quote, we wrote a sequel and we may wind up doing it on Crackle.com because they want to be the first web address to do a sequel to a movie. Because Sony owns them and it's a Sony movie. We're trying to find a way to make it for the budget, but we really want to do it and keep it good, end quote. Now, he does go on to say, he's got a big, huge quote here. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. He goes on to say, the problem is budgets. Budgets are now either $3 million or $200 million. They don't do 15 to $30 million budgets anymore, really and truly. So he's just trying to work within those constraints and get the music that they want and have it actually work and flow. He does say that if he wants to do, if he can do it, he'd like to get Kid Rock and Christopher Walken back. I think we should just let it go. Let it go. Next up from TheRap.com, courtesy of Jordan Zacharin. Power Rangers getting a reboot feature film by Lionsgate. Oh, the studio is teaming with Hayam Saban to bring the classic franchise back to square one on the big screen. Oh. Just no, stop, no. But it gets worse. It gets worse. From movies.msn.com. Courtesy of WENN. Three, uh, Jared Butler drops out of Point Break remake. Oh my god, they're actually making a Point Break remake. And what's worse is they're not even recasting Gary Busey. They've got Ray Winstone doing his role. It's just, please stop, dear God, please stop. And then, because we're pretty much out of time for the news, I'm going to end the news, I guess my news for sure, but probably the news here, with something that I thought was really cool that could actually lead to a sequel. We may yet find out. Courtesy of TexasTribune.org. Courtesy of Brandy Grissom. Judge agrees to release murderer Bernie... Backed by Austin Filmmaker. Okay? 
from Carthage on Tuesday, more than 17 years after Bernie Tiedi shot 81-year-old Marjorie Nugent in the back and tucked her body under pot pies in a deep freezer, a judge released him on bond, agreeing with lawyers that his life sentence should be reduced. But his, condition, but his release comes with strict conditions, among them that he live in the Austin Garage apartment of his movie-making benefactor, Richard Linklater, and received counseling for sexual abuse. All right, so he turns out, long story short, that he did not even tell his original defense attorneys that he had been sexually abused growing up. Coupled with the fact that he was living in a small town as a closeted gay man, he would his crime would have essentially qualified as a disassociative experience as backed by the actual prosecuting psychiatrist. That was for the, the again for the prosecutor who was played by uh, Matthew McConaughey. Now we reviewed this movie and we really loved it. We thought it was Jack, Jack Black's best role to uh, to date. But I think it's just amazing that they actually were successful in getting him released. I, I'm just wondering if we're going to get a weekend at Bernie's three, the Linklater edition, maybe later. I don't know. I hope not, because everybody <laughs> upon everybody seems to have faith. I'm serious. How everybody, did if you read this Bernie's whole article, tie into trying to tie into Bernie. It wouldn't. It would have to be. It would. My logic, wild turkey logic. I'm just saying, weekend at Bernie's, the Linklater edition. I'm just, yeah. I just you know, Linklater's garage apartment edition. <laughs> no, I mean seriously though, everybody upon everybody has been like. You know what? He's really nice. He, he, you know, he's just such a really and genuinely a truly overall, <laughs> despite this, uh, you know, murder thing, good person, and that's why everybody, including Richard Linklater, is going to bat for him. Um, and they do believe even the guy who prosecuted him, who is, he even has to grudgingly say, "Look, I mean, they have a point." It, and it's interesting because. The people who were supporting him before, most of them are actually pretty upset that he's getting out of jail now. I guess 17 years of perspective has changed most minds. Except for Reba Tarjik, who played a role in Linkletter's film, sat in the second row of the courtroom right behind T.D. during the hearing. She said she thought he had served enough time. Quote, we all make mistakes. We're still God's children. End quote. (laughs) I guess that's the news for me. And maybe for us. Yes, definitely. Okay. <laughs> oh, weekend at Bernie's three, Link Letters Garage Apartment Edition. <laughs> yeah. All right. So then, I guess it is time to move on into three square. <laughs> Yes! Three squared. Okay, so this week's three squared was an excellent idea by Tim. And I must say, I'm very excited uh, to do this one here. It is our favorite fictional movie leaders. Okay, so think John Connor from the Terminator series, right? Because, you know, he was the leader of the rebellion. So this is what we're doing. And I'm going to let Tim go first because I took a very unexpected turn. 
on him, and he wasn't. He didn't see this coming, and I, I would. So I want him to go first, so that I can come in and just kind of go, bam. And and, and also, I get to drink a lot while he talks. Go ahead, Tim. Okay, so when I think of a leader, I think uh, a movie leader. I think of somebody who, if I was put in whatever situation that they were in to where it's like, oh, in this particular situation, I would need a leader of this caliber. I totally would have picked the leader that led the group in that particular situation in within that movie. Yeah, my logic right there. Got it. I don't know who to do first. Uh, I, you know what? I'll go with I'll go with ladies first here. My first one is the Lily Tomlin character from the hysterical film Nine to Five, Violet Newstead. And a lot of people don't think of her as as a leader in the movie. Definitely a leader of women's rights, women's lib, especially. I, this could even be a joint pick for like Dolly Parton and uh, Jane Fonda, their characters as well. But particular, uh, particularly uh, her, because she has this really good line in the movie. And for those of you who don't know, her character basically, she she prepares the coffee, you know, she the coffee for various bosses and whatnot. And she accidentally places what, the rat poison, pretty which looks just like the box, the sugar box for the coffee places the rat poison in place of, you know, where, where the sugar usually goes. And so when the coffee is made, the, the rat poison gets put into the coffee instead. And their boss is this chauvinistic, bigoted, sexist, racist even pig, played by Gabby Coleman, who is phenomenal in the role. They're all phenomenal. And they think they killed their boss, and so they try to hide the body, they steal the body from the hospital, and once they find out that no, he is not dead, in fact, he is still alive, they lock him in his mansion, and they tie him up, they, tr- they, they, they keep him in prison there, and as they do that, they go and they basically reform the office, they make it more uh, dem- de- uh, democratic, and since it's mainly women, you know, the lady secretaries there, they make the atmosphere more conducive to their lifestyles, to where if they have kids... There is a nursery at the school. So what the character Violet Newstead does is that, yes, she is very eccentric. <laughs> she is hysterical. She is foul-mouthed even. She is a smartass. But she strives for equality. And she, uh, and she achieves what she sets out to achieve. You know, And once the boss is gone, she creates a very democratic and liberated office setting. But it's more of like, you know, I'm wanting, I'm standing up for change in this office because this guy is an asshole and everybody has been kissing his ass. Now it's time to kiss your own asses and, you know, make a, make this work experience more conducive to our own lifestyles. So people can actually look forward to going to work. And that's why I chose her as one of my three favorite movie leaders is because she sets out to do something good. And, you know, she achieves it in a very funny, if not eccentric, way. There is a small little ending scene where they kind of go out, go over everybody and tell them what, you know, give them a little brief blurb as to what happens after the movie's over. Mm-hmm. And I love Violet's because they, they show how she gets a promotion for 
cool, for being cool and calm and collect, you know, basically for performing well under stressful conditions while they're showing the scene where she's running the body from the morgue. Yeah. The yeah freaking out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that, that's an amazing choice. I love that choice. So great. A, what a wonderful choice. I'm sorry. I, I, okay. I like my twist that's coming folks, but as far as I'm concerned, hands down of all six choices that are coming, I think this is the best right here. So way to, way to start off strong, sir. Next up is, is probably, I think one of, in my opinion, at least one of the coolest, savviest, suavest leaders out of out of all of Hollywood leaders. Period, and that is George Clooney's portrayal of Danny Ocean in Ocean's Eleven. Uh, he's cool. He's fun. He's a dashing gentleman, very tongue in cheek, and he's a leader with great wit and personality. It takes this kind of man to lead this eccentric cadre of crooks. You know, you have the Asian circus performer who he becomes like a smartass throughout the <laughs> throughout the movie. You have the Brad Pitt character who's constantly eating, and he's kind of the brains as well as the operation, but he needs a handle as well. You have Linus, who is the Matt Damon character, who is kind of the rookie of the bunch. You have the two brothers. Uh, one of them is played by Casey Affleck. That's just constantly fighting and bickering with one another. Uh, just all these guys. And again, they're an eccentric cadre of people, of men. And he has to put up with them. And he has to be the one that leads them and makes sure that they, you know, that they, that everybody does what they need to do. Make sure that they'll do what they need to do. There you go. And on top of that, he leads these guys into pulling off one of the most absurd and intricate heists of all time. Where they have to rob three of Las Vegas's biggest, grandest, and most popular casinos. And that would be the Bellagio, the Mirage, and the MGM Grand. And they pull it off. You know, it's, it's a science. So, yeah, Danny Ocean. And third... My last and final hero is probably the most, I guess, humble, cool, under pressure, you know, uh, under tense situations, he knows exactly what to do. And that would be Viggo Mortensen's Aragon from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, especially Lord of the Rings from 2001. He's the ultimate leader. Again, he's another one. If you're going to be going through Middle Earth and having to defeat orcs and shit, and evil wizards and sorcerers, this is the guy that you want to have your back, for sure. He knows what to do, when to do it, at, at any given moment possible. And he is an ultimate badass. He has he gives probably one of the best pre-battle speeches ever. It, it just gives you shivers, because you have so much devoted to this character and to all these men that you just feel for them. So whenever he gives this heartfelt speech that, you know, you are warriors, you will fight, it it's just fantastic. It just makes you want to break down and cry every time you watch it, no matter how many times you watch it. It's very much like Mel Gibson, his speech in Braveheart. You know, it's on that level of amazement. And, you know, not many people can pull that off in movies, but only the best leaders can pull that off. And there, my friend, stands... Aragon, the leader, and for that matter, the other two as well. And those other two were Violet Newstead, 
played by Lily Tomlin from 9 to 5. Danny Ocean in Ocean's Eleven, played by George Clooney. And then again, finally, Viggo Mortensen's Aragon from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And those are my three favorite Hollywood leaders. Hollywood movie leaders. Right on, right on. Okay, well then, we're going to go right into mine. Now, here's the twist, folks. I've got three as well, and I'm going to do them second runner-up, first (laughs) runner-up, and then first place in terms of my favorite movie leaders. First up for me, Deacon Frost. Now, you're thinking to yourself, that name kind of sounds familiar, but I don't know why. It's because he is the head of all the motherfucking vampires in Blade. That's right. He is the head honcho motherfucking villain. In Blade. He's played by Steven Dorff in the movie. And interestingly, he's also, because this is based on Marvel comic books, because, you know, apparently we can just cannot escape comic books ever again. The He he, he doesn't look anything like Steven Dorff. In, in the comic books, he's like an older, white-haired dude with a goatee and stuff. Doesn't look anything like Steven Dorff, but that's okay. I really just loved... Okay, he plays... Okay, to draw an analogy here, we had Danny Ocean that was brought up by Tim. And I would have to say that for me, Steven Dorff epitomizes the bad guy version of that. He's so ultra cool, ultra suave, and yet at the same time, totally not afraid to kick ass and take names. And of course, just like any villain, just overconfidence... Is what un- is what eventually undoes him, but not before he becomes super amazing bad guy villain up against Wesley Snipes. I love the way that he plays the character. He is very he's he's very smart. He actually is a forward thinking guy, and it's very evident throughout the movie as he continues to gain power. Just exactly how smart he really is, how driven he really is, and how ruthless he actually is and that's why everybody ends up gravitating towards him and that's why he ends up being the head honcho vampire of all the vampire clans by the end of the movie great acting it's i mean it's not the best movie in the world in terms of all that but the way he played it i love how he acted in this thing and then of course the character itself is just absolutely amazing and in the movie he confronts blade at one point during the day and again, it's just, you know, but he looks all kind of weird even for a vampire. It's because he puts sunblock on. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's just one of those things where he's actually able to carry on a great monologuing scene and everything and tell him how he's going to destroy Blade and have all that kind of stuff. And yet at the same time, almost ludicrous because it's a vampire wearing sunblock in the daytime. So take what you will from that. But I just think he's a great bad guy and what and, and just really one of the coolest leaders you could ever imagine. Next up for me, Captain Motherfucking Hook. Now, Hook has been played by quite a few people over the over the years, from the stage versions uh, to the early film versions uh, featuring like Rob Harwood uh, from back in the silent era and everything. And then, of course, you, you have the Disney versions and everything, which were voice acted. But there is truly one hook and that of course is the title character from hook played by dustin hoffman 
Now, Dustin Hoffman is a fantastic actor, so of course he's going to bring the truly over-the-top performance that is required for Hook, and yet make it, and yet it's manageable. He does it in a very manageable way. It's very believable. It's so believable, in fact, that he was actually able to convince his children to do things like it's time to go to bed, they wouldn't go to bed or whatever, they're roughhousing everything, by simply switching to the Captain Hook voice and talking to them like Hook. <laughs> and they would do what he said because they were scared. <laughs> I mean, this is that's is just the power that James Hook had. Now, again, is he going to win the day? No, he's a villain. But that's all right. It's it's his qualities as a villainous leader that make him so endearing. And 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 of course, we have the added bonus for given our sad beginnings to the show, or at least through the news and everything. With Bob Hoskins passing away, he played Smee. And he kind of is, you know, trying to get Hook and Buck, you know, buck him up. And eventually you get the ultimate line. What would the world be like without James Hook? And you get, and the best part of it is, you can literally ask yourself that question in real life today. And the answer would be not anywhere near as good as it is. Hook is an amazing bad guy. He's an amazing leader. And yes, he is too full of himself. And yes, he is too over the top. And yes, he is almost stupid in some ways. But that doesn't keep him from being ruthless enough to stay on top. And that the only person who can undo him is the hero. I think that makes an amazing leader. And that's why, and especially the way that Dustin Hoffman plays him in such a fantastic movie, that's why he is my second, or he's my first runner-up. So we come to the last. We come to Emperor Palpatine. Yes, folks. Now, this, now of course, th- there is no true Palpatine unless he's played by Ian McDermott. But... We still have the man who ruled the galaxy, the galaxy, for 23 years as the emperor. And not only was he the emperor, this was a guy who got to, who, who, who basically finagled an entire galaxy into going to war against itself just so he would be the emperor. And he did it. At the same time, managing to virtually destroy all of the Jedi, build a Sith Empire, well, for whatever it's worth, because, I mean, it always always ends up being just him and one other dude. But either way. And then gets not one, not one, but two motherfucking Death Stars. Two. This is a guy who is virtually unstoppable. And, I mean, of course, by this point in... Life, everybody should know that he, of course, does meet an untimely demise. But, I mean, think of how smart, how far ahead you have to plan, how truly devious, how evil you must be to maintain true control over a galaxy. We can't even get dictators who can last more than 20, 30 years. And that's if they're lucky and then they die of natural causes anyway. But this guy managed to take over a galaxy for, and hold it for 23 years. That is phenomenal. That is the ultimate in being a leader. 
And he's just so amazingly evil. It's, I, I, I want to use, I'm going to use this word, deliciously evil. He's like <laughs> the fruit of the devil. <laughs> evil. <laughs> I just, yeah. Wow. He's the, just, the, just this most amazing bad guy. So, again, played by Ian McDermott. Uh, so, he, yeah. Those are my favorite movie fictional movie leaders we had steven dorf as deacon frost we had dustin hoffman as james hook captain james hook and then of course ian mcdermott as emperor palpatine and that brings to a close our three squared for next week it's going to be another masterpiece discussion a la discussions with matt and tim and again that's going to be the screenrobot.com article the romantic chick flick r.i.p which leaves us with the last segment. The movies. There's a lot of alcohol fueling. That very long breath. I know. Right you could have like lit it on fire and it would have been like very badass. <laughs> From there, you can smell the alcohol, can't I, you? I can. Can't yes. You? Yes, you can. Maybe we should just make that the title of the, of the episode. Just slurp hyphen. I, mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know if you can do that or not. All right, so the movies for this week were The Amazing Spider-Man 2, The History of Future Folk, and Valhalla Rising. Where would you like to turn to first, Mr. Tim? Let's do a little future folking. I'm pretty sure... Well, I mean, we're going to spoil it just by asking about it, so we may as well just go ahead and do it. We're doing it. We're doing it. All right. Now, this is... Uh, from uh, 2013, although it was filmed around 2011-ish or so, uh, just took them that long to actually get it into theaters, and it was a limited release. It is a it is an origin story of the band Future Folk, who hail from the planet Hondo, and have come not to enslave but to conquer earth and yet because they have not known music upon its discovery they spare us to sing of the folk songs from their world that we can only conceive of in the future now this movie stars Nils Delari and Jay Clates, who are who make up the the duo Future Folk, and much like Tenacious D, much like Flight of the Concords, this origin story movie is based on an actual musical uh, comedy uh, variety act that is Future Folk, uh, just like Flight of the Concords is a real comedic duo musical act, just like Tenacious D is a is a real musical act, but. When we were talking about this movie, well, I guess texting about this movie the other day, I made a comment, and uh, and for me, this movie is really and truly what Tenacious D and The Pick of Destiny could have and should have been. It's almost as if 
Tenacious D and Flight of the Concords got together and had this amazing, you know, virtuoso offspring that created such an amazing film. I truly, truly enjoyed this movie. I cannot tell you. It was so refreshing. It started off, I wasn't sure where it was going to go when it started off. But, I I mean, within the first 10 minutes, I was, I was hooked. I, it was just, it was just odd enough to keep me interested. But very quickly, the quirkiness and the comedy shone through. The acting is all very well done. The effects, while simple, are also well done. And the story is outlandish enough to be funny, especially when you have bonus people like D. Snyder in there. I mean, <laughs> and yet, at the same time, even though it's outlandish, it's still relatable. There are things and events that happen that are truly relatable to you, and, and you find yourself enjoying the quirkiness of it. It's not a perfect movie. There are... And, and it's not that it's there are plot holes necessarily, but there are definitely gaps in the storytelling that could have been better filled in the time provided. However, that doesn't hold the movie back. It does, however, leave you wanting a little bit more, especially when it's set up so cleverly, and then it's executed really well on top of that. So the cinematography, very, very simple. One of the things that I think that if they had wanted to, where they kind of shortchanged the story, they could have made up for it with the cinematography to help tell, to help fill those gaps in the story a little bit better. However... The story is so good and so genuine, and the acting is truly heartfelt, and the music is really and truly fun, that that you end up feeling okay. It's still okay. And so, I was initially going to say that this is a four-star movie, but it really isn't. It's For me, it's four and a quarter stars, because there is enough in there that... There are some legitimate critiques to it, but even still, this is still better than just a really good movie. You definitely need to check this thing out. If you are even a remotely a fan of Tenacious D, if you're even remotely a fan of Flight of the Concords, then you are definitely going to enjoy this film. And if you just want something quirky that you haven't seen before, this is definitely going to fit the bill. Four, four and a quarter stars for me. Really, really, really enjoyed this. And I hope that you will as well. What do you think, Tim? This is what the Tenacious D movie should have been like. It should have been something that it wasn't obvious that they were trying so hard to be different. And they were trying so hard to be funny. Instead, what you have here is a very nuanced movie. Nuanced performances. It's a small indie movie, but it has a, a, a broad scope, you know? But it's not... It, again, it, it doesn't try too hard at all. Uh, the music is catchy. What the, the Probably the best thing about this movie is that they take the straight man and the goofy character, 
you know, like the you know, the D. Martin and Jerry Lewis character. But this, you have the straight guy, and then you have the goofy fat guy in the movie. But they all have redeeming qualities. He's not just the goofy fat guy. He's the goofy fat guy that gets the hot chick at the end of the movie. You know? And it's fun seeing him, or it's interesting seeing him achieve that goal. He does a couple funny things. And again, they're things that you've seen before in movies, but you've seen it in a lot of movies that were that were achieved not as well as how they achieved it in, in this movie, if that makes any sense. The movie is about good people doing good things after discovering music, which is something that most human beings take for granted. And so I think that's very interesting. This is a movie where you can tell just by watching it that these guys love music and they're expressing it through the characters and through this movie. I mean, it's a guy who plays a banjo, pretty much. A banjo and then a, and then a guitar and there's not no drums, there's no keyboards. It's folk music. It's really, really good. These guys love music and you absolutely can tell by watching it. So I definitely recommend it. Uh, this movie has issues... But again, like what Matt said, despite the issues, despite the problems, it's still a very enjoyable movie. So I give this one four stars. All right, then. Where would you like to turn, sir? Let's do a little bit of Valhalla Rising. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the 2009 Danish film. Now, this one here stars a whole bunch of people that you've really never heard of that you may or may not recognize. Well, Mads Mikkelsen. If you saw him, you'd recognize him for sure. Yes, you would. You would definitely recognize Mads uh, Mikkelsen if you saw him. Um, try, oh, you know what? He was the bad guy in Casino Royale. Uh, La the Sharif. one with the yeah. He's Hannibal yeah, the, in, the, in the TV show Hannibal. No. There you go. Okay, so he was in the hunt that, as well. that we loved, the foreign movie that Matt liked. That, that was your favorite. movie. Oh my God! Time. Yes. Oh, totally forgot about that. Yes. Okay. So. We okay, so there we go. So we've got Mads Mikkelsen or Mickelson. Now, okay, this is a heavily fantasy slash spiritually based movie, and I and I don't mean spiritual as in religious per se, as much as there are esoteric things happening within this film, and it follows. The man known only as One-Eye, he is a Norse kind of warrior. Uh, he's mute. He, he, but he has visions, and he believes wholeheartedly in the visions and follows them to their end. And follows him on his adventures, starting off in a very Conan the Barbarian-esque fashion, culminating on a semi-crusade, as it were, and with his uh, eventual sidekick, the boy. I don't... There, there's really no way to simply describe this movie. But let me help you out with the plot here. Okay, so he's a slave who ends up getting free, and he, he lets this young boy, the son of one of, the, one of his captors, who fed him, he, he feels obligated to allow him to join him on, on whatever, you know, a journey or just follow him, whatever. He ends up joining these Christians, these Christian sailors, these Christian Vikings, on their uh, journey into finding uh, the, the land of hope. The land, pretty much their uh, Eden, their version of Eden, the land of, of 
I, I forget what they say in the in the movie, uh, but th- this is their their faith land. But as they get to the land, it very much be more like their hell than their heaven. Because like what Matt said, he ends up Madsen Mickelson's character ends up he has these visions and he follows these visions. But however, these visions ultimately leads to something a lot more sinister than what you would what what these guys were hoping for. That's pretty much the, the plot of the movie, the main plot. I mean, it takes a little while to get to that plot of the movie, but it's a way of summing yeah, it up. Okay, so yes. Perfect. Thank you, Tim. You, you did it much more succinctly than I would have. This is a movie that when you have... Okay, so you have a mute character. Think uh, Soldier. Kurt Russell's Soldier. is Someone who doesn't speak a lot. So, so you're... Every driving force, everything that's happening is a reaction by this character to the things around him. Combined, of course, with the visions. And that's okay. It's that, that's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But you just have to be really careful because that requires you, especially when there, ne- there are not other characters necessarily to help keep the dialogue moving, to help drive the story. You're then relying on cinematography to tell the tale. Now, this is a movie that was filmed entirely in Scotland. And I don't want to disparage the director here. Um, or especially the cinematographer, but I really feel like they took the easy way out in this regard. I mean, clearly, I'm not a cinematographer. I mean, you know, so I, I'm not trying to sit there and say that I would have done it necessarily any better, or maybe even any differently. But when you're dealing with something that's as pretty and uh, as diverse cinematography-wise. It can be very easy to simply rely on the scenery and rely on the location to do the work for you. And sometimes, and in this particular film, it's just not enough. And it's and again, because it's so beauty, it's so beautiful, it's so stark, and it, and because of the weather naturally there, it allows for certain things, especially there's at one point in the film where these guys get lost in a fog. They're, they're on a ship. He's met up with the Crusaders. They're on a ship. They're lost in the fog. They're wondering what's, what's the problem. Are they cursed? Why, why are bad things happening to them? And these things would naturally occur. They don't need a whole lot of special effects. That's not to say that they didn't use anything, but they don't need a lot of special because these things would happen in this area naturally. And And again, Using that to your advantage is fine, but I really felt that, especially in examples like this, they were simply just relying on the location to do the work for them instead of using better techniques to help drive the story forward. And again, when you have these major plot points happening, a lot of the times it's in concert with the dialogue of the other characters, and that is you're already using that. So why do you need to use that in concert with something else? You can you, you can you can hold back on that cinematography and let that tell a stronger story when you need it to do so on its own. And because of the main character being that way, I really felt that their location choice allowed allowed it to be too easy for that to happen and 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 just and it it just did not feel organic and it hurts this movie a lot 
because you need those kinds of things to keep you vested, to keep you interested if you're not going to be vested. And I, I just, it, it didn't work for me in this regard. Because of the nature of the, of the film and how they wanted to advance the plot, especially with the somewhat ambiguous ending... It just, for me, that, that whole style really hurt the film. This is not a bad movie, but it's really not a good movie either. I, I came away from this one, um, I, I was mildly interested going in. By the time it was over, I can't say that I regret watching it, but I really and truly got to give this one two and a half stars. It was just okay. Not bad, not good. It's just okay. Um, Tim, I know you said you were kind of struggling with it a little bit more than me, but where do you land on it? I think it's a pretty good movie. There, The movie has some greatness to it. You know, whether if it's visual meaning or the, through the little bit of dialogue that there is in the movie, there is greatness in there. Fantastic imagery. And I love, if you're familiar with Irish mythology or just mythology in general, a lot of people will say, okay, well... His character, One-Eye, there's a lot of references to, like, Odin. You know, Odin was the Deathbringer in Irish mythology. Through He was a Deathbringer through battle. And even the character of One-Eye, he can be interpreted, interpreted as the Deathbringer. I mean, he's the fighter. He is the warrior. I mean, there are differences between the two. But then there are, there are just so much, uh, so many uh, similarities. Especially with, like, the visions of death. And the visions of of being in, of of coming from hell, because it is said in the movie where one of the Christians says, "Where are you from?" And then another guy says, "Well, he is from hell." Again, Odin, Odin's you know, Irish mythology again from hell, and so there's a lot of ties between the two. So while you're watching the movie, it's kind of a little not I don't want to say upsetting, but I guess even upsetting to some because it's very it's very violent it's very gritty it's very dirty it's very bloody and the though the scenery is beautiful it's very bleak you know and the, the condition the weather conditions are not good and it just adds so much to the story and so much to the meaning of the movie and again it's not a great movie but there's just so much to uh interpret and if you understand a little bit of mythology or even if you're just uh, willing to give the movie a shot and just sit down and and watch it, it definitely takes a little bit time to uh, to, to fully I, I think to fully get into it. But you definitely have to have a certain mindset while going into it because this does something uh, quite different from a lot of like the Viking films of of the past. You know, like you, you look at you know like Braveheart. That's not a Viking film, but, you know, it's, it's definitely a period war movie based in Scotland. But, like, it doesn't have, like, these grandiose battles. It has them walking up to the Christian camp after they finish burning, like, I, I believe, I'm pretty sure they were, they were like, pagans. You know, the, the pagans were, you know, are, are just charred in what was, like, a big human bonfire. You don't see it, but you definitely, you definitely see the aftermath of it, not the actual act itself. And there's a lot of... Things that are implied. Answers are not fully given. There is a lot of interpretation, like I said. And it's very... I don't I don't know if it's entertaining, but at least to me, it was kind of... There, there was a lot of intellectual fulfillment 
Not completely. You know, I wasn't, like, completely satisfied. But I definitely see how some people are, are turn, turned off by the movie. Uh, the director, Nicholas Winding Refn, he did Bronson. We talked about Bronson. Totally different movie. But he also did Drive, another artsy movie. One of my favorite movies with Ryan Gosling. Not a whole lot of dialogue. But when there is no dialogue, there is a lot of meaning. And within this movie, a good portion of the time, there is a lot of meaning and there's just a lot of stuff behind it with the eerie music and the eerie setting the creepy characters and i don't know just like i said there's there's just a lot of greatness in the movie so i give i feel like i'm going around in circles so i'll just end it with saying i give this one 3.5 out of 5 we're down to the amazing spider-man 2 which of course is the sequel to 2012's amazing spider-man this is uh, directed by Mark Webb, stars Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone, Jamie Foxx, and uh, a whole bunch of other people. And <sighs> among them, sadly, very briefly, Paul Giamatti, and of course the ever-effervescent Sally Field. Alright, so this one picks up pretty shortly after the first movie it actually kind of starts off with a brief flashback and then kind of flashes forward and then of course follows the continuing ad- uh, adventures of spider-man as he discovers more about what really happened with his dad and and oscorp uh his reconnection with his buddy uh, harry and the development of his relationship with gwen and all that stuff and dealing falling out dealings with guilt with over gwen's dad and this is a movie that is both better than the original and worse than the original in several different ways. In ways, let's let's get the bad news out of the way first. All right, the movie is all over the place in terms of trying to nail down what the threat really is. Everything always comes back to Oscorp. However, it's how Oscorp chooses to deal with Peter Parker slash Spider-Man that makes everything else possible. Now, the problem with that is is that they keep using that to move things around, bump things forward, give you an impression that you're going to see more villains than you really are. And when you think you're going to see villains... Uh, where they're going to be and how they're actually going to come about. Another bad thing there is the story itself. The story is trying to take... It's okay. It's trying a little bit too hard to be the Dark Knight. This is not that kind of movie. It's not that kind of franchise, as evidenced by the lighthearted way in which they approach the character of Spider-Man as a whole. Which is funny because... Well, not funny, it's ironic because they really and truly nailed Spider-Man's character as as per the comics, as per the lifeblood that has been Spider-Man over all these years. They truly nailed it this time. But then they tried way too hard to intersperse the Dark Knight kind of feel to it. Finally... The bad news, the bad part here for me was they just simply were trying too hard. 
they were trying too hard to learn the lessons of the to learn the lessons of the Dark Knight, because as awesome as the Dark Knight was, there were still some issues with it. They became more present in the Dark Knight Rises, but whatever. They tried too hard to learn the lessons of Batman Returns and subsequent movies from that. They tried too hard to learn the lessons of X Men Last Stand. They tried. They just simply tried too hard. And it shows. The good news, though, and there is more good news for me than bad news. The good news here is that despite these failings, they truly nailed the characters. Every single character really felt genuine to me. Even Paul Giamatti, because he ends up being a caricature of a character. So... I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt on that one. Another thing that they did was they were smart in the fact that it leads the previews, the way the story unfolds, leads you to believe that there is going to be an, it's like another Spider-Man 3 where they've got just too many villains and everything's trying to happen at once. And they don't do that. They do, they do make a very valid attempt to give everybody their own screen time to enact to, to actually enable the characters as they go. And that's smart. It was a very smart play. Despite the fact that there are too many thre- disparate threads that they do when again on the bad side, the good side is is that all in all it really doesn't hurt the pacing of the movie. It has a very natural flow everything feels organic as it happens also on the good side special effects i actually think the special effects really took a step up and not just technologically i really just think that they did a much better job of putting the special effects in 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 a way that everything seemed to be a little bit more believable there is one caveat to that um just very very minor minor spoiler alert here you know give me about 10 seconds and then come back the final scene the very final scene in the movie that was the only time that the special effects were really kind of you know not so hot okay five four three two okay that's been about 10 seconds and finally the actual plot of the movie while it did try too hard still came out a little bit stronger than the plot of the first movie. They did a few things, especially... I'm trying to do this without spoiling anything. They did a few things, especially with Gwen Stacy's character, that I felt were not needed. And when you watch the entire movie, you'll know what I mean. But... When you balance it on the whole with where they're going to go with the series, it actually almost works in its favor because when we get to the when we get to the next and probably last film for this uh, supposed trilogy, then we'll have a better payoff, and I'm hoping that it will pan out to be a better payoff for the last movie. You'll get a few laughs out of it. And you won't get any real tears out of it. However, I like the movie. I'm going to go ahead and land on this one. 
at three and a half stars. I liked it. I didn't really like it, but there was enough more like than not to like. That's all I got. How, how'd I do? Did I did I just totally just stomp this into the ground in the wrong way or what? No, 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 no. You you did it. it, it was, it's just a wild turkey review. Okay, so, there you just, go. I'm sorry for my wild turkey review of Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> but I will say that I definitely enjoyed this one a lot more than the, the first one. If any of you guys remember from a, of an argument we did during the reboot portion of our shows, uh, yeah, I did not like it at all. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to run down this list of a, a couple little points that I wrote down uh, after I went and saw the movie. First off, I thought Jamie Foxx played the character, his villain character. Not not the Electro part, but like the pre-Electro character. Like how a black comedian would portray a stereotypical white dork. And that's where I kind of got the idea of okay, so this movie isn't trying to be a serious entry into the superhero drama. It's going to be what I like to call the Batman Forever of Spider-Man movies. And it doesn't even fully succeed at doing that. It succeeds in being the Batman Forever of Spider-Man movies because of the color. Some of the characters are over the top. But yet, it still tries to be like what Matt said, like a Dark Knight ish kind of Batman-y type of movie with drama, with more dramatic plot points and what happens to particular characters and all that jazz. And the reason why I compared it to Batman Forever is because Batman Forever, the Joel Schumacher movie, is very colorful. The Two-Face and the Riddler, they're over-the-top, they're goofy, they're silly. Well, there are a lot of over-the-top, goofy, silly characters in the movie. Not only just Paul Giamatti's Rhino character, but as well as, like, I, I'm guessing the... I forgot if he was, like, the Russian scientist who was the scientist of, of Electro. You know, he was... It, that, to me, that was, like, a Sam Raimi character. This was more of a Sam Raimi movie than I think the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies were. Let's see, you got the, the, the comic book color, goofy colors, the characters. It's just missing the gaudy Batman Forever music. The ho-ho-ho and the brass section horns and all that. You have the snotty-nosed rich bastard character who is the sole chairman of a major global technology corporation, Harry Osborn. Until, you know, that other under-the-table stuff goes on. You have the evil villain catchphrases, which all of them have evil villain catchphrases. Electro has a couple that are on par with Arnold Schwarzenegger's Mr. Freeze's Cool It line. If they knew Spider-Man got his powers from Oscorp, wouldn't they have Peter Parker on a surveillance camera somewhere and they're able to, like, you know, level down or narrow down who the hell Spider-Man is? I don't know. I thought that was interesting, so I wrote that down. And again, I thought this was trying to be two different movies. The goofy comic book movie, the indie drama movie, romance movie. Yes, the the Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy character. Those, you know, Emma Stone, great. She's my favorite part of these two movies. I love her as a human being. She's funny. She's just a great actress. It's just, just not as much as the first movie. I think... It has an identity crisis. It doesn't know whether it be the fun, goofy, over-the-top comic book movie or something more independent and real. And that's that's really all I've got to say about this movie. 
Unlike the first movie, which I probably gave it two stars, I give this one three stars. Hurrah. Okay, well then that's going to go ahead and conclude the news for us. N- oh, the news? Have some more wild turkey. Gobble, gobble. Ah, <sighs> uh, this is going to conclude the fucking movies. Next week, we have all Netflix flicks. So this is going to be easy to follow us on. We've got Wrong Cops, followed by E Tu Mama Tambien. And Odd Thomas. See, look, Spanish paid off. I got that totally down. I didn't say, why to mama Tom Bayan. No, no, E tu mama tambien. And Odd Thomas. These are all, again, uh, Netflix flicks, and we're hoping to have some very interesting discussion about them. Which I guess leads us to the spiel, does it not? That is correct. Spiel on. All right. Very cool. Then let's do this. So... As usual, the music you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, all slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can check us out at our website, SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the SLSCast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can even go to Facebook, search the SLSCast there. And, of course, subscribe to us on iTunes and even favorite us on Stitcher. We would really love it if you did that. Um, Just so you know, Tim, I don't know if you know this, but we actually did get a review back on the 5th uh, of May on iTunes. It was another five-star review. It was very basic, just, you know, good show and, you know, whatever. So, uh, thank you. Holy crap, somebody is really listening. We now have a whole, like, two people that we know that listen to this show. Woo! Unless it was, like, one of our moms reviewing. That's nah, entirely possible. The show. I suppose. Thanks, Maybe. Mom. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> All right. Well, that's still two people. <laughs> it's two moms, right? All right. So, this is Matt saying that thanks to Vincent D'Onofrio, I get to say this. It's pretty simple. Pretty obvious. That people's first impressions of people are really a big mistake. Take care, guys. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.